One of the things that we need to be aware of in our lives is how easy it is for us to lose sight of what is really important in life, what really matters and what doesn't matter. This is illustrated by the following humorous article titled, A Thief in My Pew. Here's what it says. A lady took my seat in church a while back. It's not important, really. She is a very nice lady, kind and considerate, a good friend, in fact. There were other, several other seats available. I can sit any place. The people in our congregation are as friendly and caring as you will find any place in the world. A person should be comfortable sitting any place. It's no big deal. My seat is in the seventh row back from the front of the church. I'm sure she didn't intend to take my seat. She just wouldn't do that. Nor would anybody else in our fine church. It doesn't make that much difference. My seat is on the end of the pew on the north side by the windows. On your left as you come into the sanctuary. I can rest my arm on the end of the pew. It's a good seat. But I would never raise a fuss about a seat. She probably didn't intend anything personal by taking my seat. I would never hold a grudge. Actually, it was about three months ago when she took my seat. I really don't know why she took it. I've never done anything to her. I've never taken her seat. I suppose I'll have to come an hour early now to get my seat. Either that or sit on the south side. She really took it because it's one of the best seats in the house. That's why she took it. She had no business taking my seat. And I'm not going to go to church two hours early to get what was rightfully mine from the beginning. This is the way great social injustices begin. Abusive people taking other people's seats in church. This is the way seeds of revolution are sown. A person can only stand so much. Where is it going to end? If somebody doesn't stand up and be counted, nobody's seat will be safe. People will just sit any place they please. And the next thing they'll do is take my parking spot too. World order will be in shambles. Well, there are people like that, you know, and those of us in spiritual leadership have to shepherd them. Furthermore, all of us have the tendency to be that way with one thing or another. Maybe it's not a seat or a parking spot, but you and I also have silly things in our lives that are far too important to us. It's so easy to lose sight of what's really important. It's so easy to lose an eternal perspective on life. The Apostle Peter was well aware of that fact, so he sought to help us keep a proper perspective by the things he wrote in the closing chapter of his second letter. Let's turn there together, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. And Lord willing, today and next Lord's Day, we'll conclude our look at this tremendous letter titled 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> please follow along as I read verses 8 through 14, although our text will be verses 12 through 14, but I'll back up to verse 8 to begin reading so we get the flow and context in our minds. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all 
should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. As we begin to contemplate this rich text before us, I want you to take a minute to think about something in your life that you really looked forward to for quite a length of time, and then you finally experienced it. For some, maybe it was looking forward to the first time you were able to drive a vehicle with your new driver's license. Or maybe it was the first time you were able to take a trip by plane. Or maybe it was the first time you were able to travel abroad. For some, maybe it was the first time you were able to see the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or the Washington Monument or some other spectacular site. For others, maybe it was looking forward to the day you would graduate from high school or college or the day you would get married. For some, maybe it was when you were finally able to move into your own home or move to a city or state in which you always wanted to live. There are many things or experiences in life that have the potential to bring a high sense of anticipation. And when those dreams or longings are realized, it can be exhilarating. If there is something in life that you really want to do or really want to experience, then whatever the sacrifice happens to be to reach that goal is seen as insignificant. You are glad to sacrifice. You're glad to save. You're glad to do whatever it takes because you are focused on that future exciting event. Beloved, that is exactly the way God wants us to live life in relation to eternity. He wants our excitement about our eternal home to be so real to us, so riveting to us, that it governs the way we live our lives today. That's what the Apostle Peter is describing in the verses we just read. These verses are talking about the anticipation we ought to have for our eternal home and the way that anticipation ought to govern our lives today. In the first part of verse 14, Peter uses the phrase, looking forward to these things. That's the way we ought to live life, looking forward to these things. We ought to be looking forward to the things Peter has been discussing in this section of his letter. He has been talking about the second coming of Christ in the early verses of this chapter. He has stated very emphatically that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. Christians have believed this 
and proclaim this since Jesus ascended back into heaven from the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. However, because it hasn't happened yet, some people scoff at the suggestion that Jesus is coming back. It begs the question, why hasn't he returned? If God is going to end this present world by the second coming of his Son in judgment, why hasn't he done it already? It seems to us that the timing is right, maybe even past time. Why hasn't God done it? Peter gives two answers to that question here in this text. Number one, God's perspective of time is different than ours. That's verse 8. And number two, God's heart for the lost. God's heart for unsaved people prompts him to wait. That's verse 9. That is why it hasn't happened yet. God's perspective of time is different than ours, and God's heart for the lost prompts him to wait to execute judgment. But, make no mistake about it, judgment is coming. And that is what Peter reaffirms in our text. He says in verse 10, coming off of verse 9, that stating the Lord is very patient, he's very long-suffering, but, but, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. It will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. As we saw last Lord's Day, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is a technical phrase used many, many times in Hebrew Scripture to refer to a future time of fierce judgment. It is primarily a time of death, destruction, devastation, and vengeance. It is described in Isaiah 2, 12 through 21, Isaiah 13, 6 through 11, Jeremiah 30, verses 4 through 7, Joel 2, verses 1 through 31, Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. Those are just a few of the passages in Hebrew Scripture that refer to the day of the Lord, and there are many others. If you study all the passages closely, you will find that often the prophets would describe a judgment in their own day, of their own time, as a preview of the ultimate day of the Lord judgment that will take place in the end times. So that's the background to this section of Peter's letter. The day of the Lord is not merely a day, one single day. It's a, a time, an, an event, or a series of events. Man has had his day for a long time. But the time is coming when the Lord will have his day. The day of the Lord will be a time that is characterized by the fierce judgment of God. There are at least two future events that Peter has in mind when he uses this phrase because he mentions both of them right here in this chapter. One of them is the physical, literal, bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth in flaming judgment at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. That's one of them. The other one is the dissolution of the present heaven and earth in connection with the great white throne judgment at the end of the 1,000-year kingdom. Peter mentions the second coming in verse 4 and the dissolution of the universe here in verse 10. Both of those events, both of those times are considered the day of the Lord because both are special interventions of God in fierce judgment. 
The second coming of the Lord is a fierce judgment because it will involve the destruction of all the armies gathered together at the Battle of Armageddon. It will also involve the consigning of the Antichrist and the false prophet to the lake of fire. It will also involve the sheep and goat judgment leading into the millennial kingdom. So the second coming of the Lord Jesus is a future time of fierce judgment, and as such, it is rightly called by Peter the day of the Lord. One thousand years later, there will be another major event or series of events that Peter refers to here in verse 10. It is also called the day of the Lord because it is a part of the day of the Lord's fierce judgment. Peter tells us that this will involve the heavens passing away with a great noise and the elements melting with fervent heat. Then he draws the first of his several applications for our lives. He says in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This is the application that Peter draws from what he has been teaching. In light of the fact that this world is not eternal, you and I should not live our lives according to to this world's standards, this world's values, this world's priorities, etc. We should not take our cues from this world. As Paul said in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This world tells us to live for self, live for now, but God tells us to live lives of holiness and godliness. Peter reminds us of this fact by using a rhetorical question. He says, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people should you be? In other words, what qualities, what kind of people should we be? What qualities should characterize our lives? Interestingly, Peter basically answers his own question by giving us three specifics in our text for this morning. He says our lives should be characterized by one an eternal perspective, two, a peaceful spirit, three, a personal integrity. Those are the things that should characterize our lives. An eternal perspective, a peaceful spirit, and a personal integrity. Notice how Peter develops each of these points. He says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Peter opens this little three-verse section of his letter and closes it with the same Greek word that is translated in our English versions, waiting for or looking for. It is obvious that this is Peter's emphasis. It is obvious by virtue of his repetition. If you were reading this in the Greek text, that would stand out to you. He's repeating a word to get our attention. He is encouraging us and exhorting us to put our focus on the future events God has planned for this world because that, he says, will give us an eternal perspective on life. He says we should be eagerly waiting for these things, looking forward to these things. Here in this verse, Peter says we should be eagerly looking forward to the coming day of God. 
Because of what Peter says in the next verse, it seems certain that he is using the phrase, the day of God, to refer to the eternal state when there is a new heaven and a new earth. To prepare the way for that new heaven and new earth, Peter tells us the Lord is going to dissolve or refine this present heavens and earth. That's what he mentions at the end of verse 12. The elements of this universe are going to melt with intense heat. This same truth was stated back in verse 10. And many commentators believe this is referring to the atoms, the neutrons, the protons, the electrons of our universe. The basic elements of our universe are going to melt with intense heat. God is going to burn them and melt them and dissolve them to prepare the way for the new heavens and the new earth. Now maybe you're wondering, why is God going to do this to the present heavens and earth that we see all around us? Why is God going to do this? The answer is, because they have been tainted by sin. Job 15, 15 says, the heavens are not clean in his sight. Isaiah 24, 5 says, the earth also is defiled under its inhabitants. The present heavens and earth have been defiled by sin and the curse, so God wants a new heaven and a new earth to be prepared for eternity. Because this is true, Peter's point here is that we should always keep in mind that this world in which we live now is not eternal. It's temporary. Therefore, we need to keep our focus on eternity. This reminds me of the statement made about Abraham in Hebrews 11.10, which says, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We need to keep our focus on eternity. We need to be, as Peter says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's a fascinating phrase. Hastening the day of God. How can we hasten the day of God? One way is by longing for it so deeply that we pray for it to come just as Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The the Apostle John closed the book of Revelation by expressing this deep longing when he said, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. When John gets to the end of that marvelous book, describing what the future holds and how the Lord Jesus will come back and righteousness will reign, he says, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's the kind of eager attitude we ought to possess with the result that we cry out to the Lord to bring about the things he has promised for the future. So Peter says in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God has promised that someday there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This promise is stated in Psalm 102, 25, Isaiah 65, 17, Isaiah 66, 22. And Peter says this has been promised according to his promise. It's stated in those three passages, and it is reiterated in Revelation 21. Turn over there with me for just a moment to the right, just a 
few pages and you'll hit the book of Revelation and go to the end of it, almost the very end of it, to chapter 21. The final two chapters of this book are a glorious culmination to all that God has inspired men to write in His Holy Word. What began in the book of Genesis is culminated here in the book of Revelation. For example, let me give you some specifics. In Genesis 1, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 21.1, we have the new heaven and new earth. In Genesis 1.16, there is the very first mention of the sun. Revelation 21.23 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no need of the sun. In Genesis 1.5, the night is established. Revelation 22.5 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no night. In Genesis 1.10, there is the first mention of the seas. Revelation 21.1 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no more sea. In Genesis 3.14-17, through 17, the curse on sin is announced. Revelation 22.3 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no more curse. In Genesis 3.19, death enters history. Revelation 21.4 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no more death. In Genesis 3.24, man is driven from the Garden of Eden. Revelation 22.14 says man is restored to paradise again. In Genesis 3.17, sorrow and pain are mentioned. Revelation 21.4 says that in the new heaven and new earth there will be no more tears, no more pain. As you step into Revelation chapter 21, you move from time to timelessness. You move from time to eternity. That's what chapters 21 and 22 of this book are about. We'll only look at two verses this morning for the sake of time. Notice how John not only begins this chapter, but the end of his book, the culmination of what he has written. Verse 1 of chapter 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. What will this be like? For one thing, it will be beautiful beyond description. How do I know that? Two reasons. Number one, chapters 21 and 22 indicate the indefinable beauty as they seek to try to describe for us what it will be like. And it's fascinating to read John's descriptions because he knows it's, in a sense, beyond description. And therefore, he says often, well, it's sort of like this. And it's, it's like that. It's, it was like that. He can't even hardly find something to which to compare it. So these chapters indicate the indefinable beauty. But there's a second reason why I know this, is be- this will be beautiful beyond description. I know the new heaven and new earth will be beautiful beyond description because this present world is beautiful and breathtaking in many ways. Yet this world is under the curse of sin. Think about some of the breathtaking scenes you have seen in nature, in creation. And to think that this world is cursed under the curse of sin. So if this world has beauty and splendor 
and glory and majesty, even though it is under the curse of sin, then the new heaven and the new earth must be beautiful beyond description since it will be altogether untouched and uncorrupted by sin. John says here in verse 1, it will be a new heaven and new earth. There are two different words for new in the Greek language. One has reference to time. It means new as opposed to old. The other has reference to quality. It means new in the sense of better. The emphasis of this word is not so much on time, but the quality. And that is the word used here in verse 1. The new heaven and new earth will be a totally new quality of existence. I find it both humorous and sad sometimes in talking with people because it is fairly common, I'm finding, that among Christians there is an idea that somehow we're going to be disappointed in heaven. You know, people think because of their own finite minds that they can't grasp an infinite concept that somehow we're going to be disappointed or be sad. And it's very, very unfortunate and humorous. Humorous in the sense that we think we can somehow box God in to our own understanding of things. But John wants us to make sure to understand that the quality of this existence will be far beyond anything we can imagine. So if in your imagination you find yourself thinking about and you're disappointed with heaven, then stop your imagination because you're not going to be disappointed. Just as God prepared heaven, earth, and the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, so also he will prepare the new heaven and new earth for us to live in for eternity. According to the last phrase here in verse 1, there will be no more sea. It's difficult to determine the significance of that statement with absolute certainty, but there are probably three aspects to it, three emphases. Number one, in ancient times the sea was a source of fear because it was so unknown. People didn't know what existed in the sea, what was in the depths, and we still don't completely know today. Number two, the sea represented the enemy of God, especially in certain passages of Scripture in the Psalms, Isaiah, and Daniel. And thirdly, the sea was a major boundary between nations. It separated people. But in eternity, there will be nothing to create fear, nothing to separate men, and God will have no enemies. That's probably what is indicated by that little phrase, no more sea. Verse 4 says this, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is an amazing description of the new heaven and the new earth because it is a description in negative terms. Notice that. Negative terms. One of the best ways to describe our eternal home, our eternal existence, is to use the words no more. It's easier to describe by what won't be there rather than by what will be there because it's impossible to adequately describe what is inconceivable to us. So how do you describe something that's indescribable and inconceivable? You can't. So you just say, no more. You, you describe it in a negative way. Bad things will be no more. Evil things will be no more. Hurtful things will be no more. John tells us what eternity will be like by using the words, no more. 
Disappointing things will be no more. Sorrowful things will be no more. The former things have passed away, the last phrase of this verse says. This is the new heaven. This is life in the new heavens and new earth. And this is the promise to which Peter refers in our text in 2 Peter 3. So let's go back there to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 13, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're excited about. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're longing for. And so Peter draws an application for us in verse 14. He says, Therefore, therefore, looking forward to these things, beloved, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Here in this verse, Peter mentions the other two qualities that should characterize our lives. First was an eternal perspective. And the two mentioned here in this verse are a peaceful spirit and a personal integrity. At the beginning of this verse, Peter again tells us to look forward to these things. The idea is that we ought to be excited about them. We ought to be focused on them. We ought to be riveted on them. And as we do focus on these future realities, Peter says we should be diligent to be found by him in peace. Notice that. In peace. It's as if Peter is saying, listen, don't be worried about the future. Don't be agitated about the events that God has planned for this world. Far too many Christians worry about how the world is going to end. Or what's going to happen when the tribulation period hits. Or or what's going to happen in the day of the Lord's judgment. Far too many Christians are worried about those things. That's the wrong way to live, says Peter. We can and should have peace. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, Paul said, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. The day of the Lord's judgment isn't coming against his people. It's coming on those who are in the darkness. So Peter says, be at peace. Don't worry. Don't be agitated. Don't be worked up. Don't be in turmoil internally. Be at peace. If you belong to the Lord, God has a plan for this world. He'll carry it out. Just be at peace. And then thirdly, the third characteristic of our lives that should be present The third element that Peter adds here, he he adds one more thought when he says at the end of this verse, at the end of verse 14, without spot and blameless. Without spot and blameless. How, How could we summarize that phrase? When I read that phrase, I think of, if I'm trying to think of one word that would capture that, one word that would summarize it, the word I think of is integrity. Integrity. Integrity comes from the math term integer. If you remember back to your math days, an integer is a whole number. So integrity is literally wholeness. No cracks, no flaws, nothing missing, wholeness. 
As one man put it, quote, integrity is when every part of your life touches every other part of your life and there's nothing in your life that's unrelated to what you believe or what you affirm or what you say your creed is. That's integrity, end quote. Now why does Peter add this one? We could see maybe why he would say, okay, we ought to be characterized by an eternal perspective and a peaceful spirit. Why does he add this third one, a personal integrity? Here's the answer, I believe. It is possible, understand this, it is possible to be a very sincere and committed Christian, but to have a major blind spot in our lives, a major disconnect in our lives. I'm talking about sincere, committed Christians. Surely you have known Christians or of a Christian who, who, who was very sincere in his commitment to Christ, but just couldn't see how his poor performance as an employee was a disconnect in his life. That's just an illustration. That's just one example. Maybe it is a Christian who is very sincere in his commitment to Christ, but he just doesn't see how his lack of sacrificial love for his wife is a disconnect. Or maybe, maybe it's a, a Christian young person who is very sincere in his or her commitment to Christ, but just doesn't see how being an irresponsible student is a poor testimony. You see, it's possible for any of us to be sincere in our commitment to Christ, genuine in our commitment to Christ, but to have some area of our lives where we don't make the connection to our testimony to Christ. We just don't view it in that way. We think our, our testimony for Christ, our walk with Christ, is all about the Bible and prayer, which certainly it is. But we don't think it's about you know, how I do my job on Thursday morning or how I do my schoolwork on Tuesday afternoon or how I relate to people in my neighborhood Wednesday night or whatever. This is the kind of thing Peter was concerned about when he wrote this phrase. Thus, his exhortation is for us to be spotless and blameless. Make sure, it's as if he's saying, make sure that every area of your life reflects your devotion to Christ. Don't segment your life into sacred and secular so that you fail to make the connection between your devotion to Christ and, and, and just fill in the blank, and your business and your job your devotion to Christ and your athletics, your devotion to Christ and your relationships, your devotion to Christ and your schoolwork, your devotion to Christ and your hobbies, your devotion to Christ and your entertainment, your devotion to Christ and your actions in everyday life, your devotion to Christ and your attitudes. Oh, how I wish God's people would realize that what they do in life is a direct reflection on the testimony of Christ. You can't segment your life, beloved. You can't. Your attitudes and actions at the PTA meeting or the basketball game or on the job or any other kind of function are directly related to the name of Christ. You cannot rightly segment your life into spiritual and non-spiritual and consider church attendance spiritual, but your work, your occupation as unspiritual. That's not valid. And for that reason, God wants us to be spotless and blameless. Peter says, as you look forward to these things, 
Make sure you're, you're characterized by an eternal perspective, a peaceful spirit, and a personal integrity. Make sure your life matches. You know, sometimes I have people say to me, Oh, Brian, you wouldn't believe how so-and-so talks at work. Or, or you ought to see how so-and-so acts when he's not at church. Beloved, don't live your life that way. Or at least don't claim to be a Christian. And please don't tell people you're a Christian who goes to Grace Bible Church. <laughs> don't give the Lord Jesus and us that kind of reputation. It's hard to overcome. Peter knew that. He was a shepherd. He had shepherded people for lots of years. And that's one of the reasons why he exhorts us to be without spot and blameless as we eagerly look for and anticipate what God has planned for the future. So as we look forward to the future and all that God has planned, we should do so with an eternal perspective, a peaceful spirit, and a personal integrity. Is that the way you're living your life? Really now, don't, don't just tune me out and turn off here. Is that really, look at your, is that the way you're living your life? Are you living with an eternal perspective, a peaceful spirit, and a personal integrity? That's the way we ought to live our lives. That's the practical application the Holy Spirit guided Peter to give us in light of what God has planned for this universe. Live that way. Let's bow together as we close. So as we bow together in closing this morning, I encourage you just to close your eyes and keep your head bowed simply so that you're not distracted by any movement so you can really think and consider what you have seen in God's Word this morning, what you have heard. And think about these three specifics that the Holy Spirit has given us through the pen of Peter. Maybe there's one in particular that really applies to you more than the others. So what are the three again? We should live life with an eternal perspective. Think about that one. Do you, do you look to the future? Are you excited about it? Are eagerly anticipating what God has planned for this world? Are you living, are you really living with an eternal perspective? Or are you, or are you just so bogged down in this present world that you, you, you don't put your eyes on the future at all? Are you living with an eternal perspective? Second, are you living with a peaceful spirit? And be honest. Others may not know about this one, but you in your own heart, you know, if you're agitated, nervous, always worked up inside, always fearful, always concerned, that may or may not come out, but again, you know. So ask yourself honestly, are, are you living with a peaceful spirit? Do you have peace in your heart, confidence God is in control? God will carry out his plan, and you can trust him. You don't need to worry or be fretful or fearful or agitated. And thirdly, are you living with a personal integrity? No disconnect, no major blind spot. I'm not asking you if you're sincere in your devotion to Christ. You can be sincere in your devotion to Christ, but still have a, a big gap somewhere there in your life in relation to integrity, where you don't make the connection. You don't realize that the way you talk Tuesday afternoons is just as important to the Lord as you being at church on Sunday morning. 
So are you living life with a personal integrity? Every area of your life matches what you say you believe. This, this is the way the Lord has called us to live. This, these are the specifics the Holy Spirit gives us as we look forward to these things. Living life with an eternal perspective, a peaceful spirit, and a personal integrity. If the Holy Spirit has sort of knocked on the door of your heart or your conscience to say, hey, there's one you, you need to address, don't, don't ignore that. Don't dismiss it. Make sure you come to grips with it. Come to terms with it. Respond how the Lord would want you to respond. And if you're here today without a relationship to Jesus Christ, then it's very clear what, what you need to do, what the application is for you. You need to humble yourself before God, turn from, repent of your sin, let go of whatever is holding you back, and call out to Jesus Christ for his salvation, his forgiveness for him to be your Lord and Savior. That's, that's definitely, that's the, definitely the, the application for you and what you need to do. So if you're here today without Christ, call on him. Trust him for your eternal salvation. Father, thank you for how practical your word is. Here, we've seen it again this morning as Peter talks about these future events and the day of the Lord. Uh, the, the heavens passing away with a great noise, the elements melting with a fervent heat, and uh, looking forward to uh, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells according to your promise. And as we think about all of those things in the future, we don't know how far, whether it's near future, far future, but regardless, we see the application for our lives, just the practical impact that these truths should have in our lives. So, Father, I pray we would really hear you hear what you have said through your word this morning, that you want us to live our lives with a, an eternal perspective, a peaceful spirit, and a personal integrity. Grant that we would live that way as we look forward to these things, eagerly anticipate them, and wait for them. And Father, in closing, we pray for anyone who is hearing these words right now who's not ready for eternity, not ready to step into eternity because he or she is not right with you, has not repented and embraced Jesus Christ by faith. May your Holy Spirit bring understanding, conviction, so that he or she would this very day turn to Christ in simple childlike faith. Accomplish your good purposes in our lives as a result of our exposure to your word this morning. This is our desire and our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.